All right, if you have your Bibles, turn to John chapter number 11. John chapter number 11. Excited about our passage this morning. Um, I've got to come through on the Lazarus come forth. You know, Dave kind of built that up for me, so I can't disappoint on that. So I'm a little, little nervous when I get to that point, Dave, but uh, I'll try to do my best to do it justice. But uh, no, what, a, what an incredible passage this, this morning that we get to look at is Dave Welch has been building our context over the last couple of weeks, and we'll be tackling this morning verses 28 through 44. I've entitled the message, Crisis, Tragedy, and the Glory of God. Crisis, Tragedy, and the Glory of God. Have you ever been in a situation and the circumstances just seem to just spiral out of control quickly? I mean, just at first glance, you're, you're in the moment, you're living these circumstances, and you just think to yourself, man, could it get any worse, right? Have, have you ever been there before where you're just like, wow, I mean, just every turn I make, it just seems like the circumstances just continue to wax worse and worse, and they culminate, culminate in some maybe climax of the circumstances that just hit rock bottom, But have you also been in a situation that at first glance, it seemed like you were in that situation of just bad circumstances, like you just can't catch a break and how could it get any worse? But then as you get through that moment, something on the other end is is actually better than what you could have imagined could have ever come out of those circumstances, right? What you thought initially was bad ultimately ended up towards something good. It had had a good ending, so to speak, right? And no doubt that's where we're at in John chapter 11, right? Martha and Mary and this group of Jewish mourners who have gathered around with them uh, just are in a moment of despair beside themselves, not being able to connect the dots of the why and the what and the how of Lazarus being gone, dead, passed away and buried in the tomb now for four days. Beside themselves, they did everything they thought they should have done. They they sent a messenger to Jesus and they said, "Lazarus, the one you love. Remember, you love this guy. He's sick. Please come, do your thing, and and heal him." And they were expecting Jesus to do what? Stop what he was doing and immediately come to Lazarus's side and ultimately heal him. They had expectations of Jesus. They had expectations of how they thought this situation was going to play out, and they couldn't ultimately connect the dots of where they went wrong. They know who Jesus is. They know what he's capable of. Martha and Mary were believers, and these group of mourners seemed to have some context of what Jesus was capable of in regards to healing this blind man, but yet here they are. Jesus has come, and he's late, and Lazarus has passed away, and they are in a moment of despair. Have you ever been there before? Maybe in your own life. Maybe you lost a job. And you liked the job. And you enjoyed the job. And it provided for your family. And you were what you thought you were good at it. And capable of the expectations of that job. But yet for some reason, that job is now gone. Maybe similar to John 11. Maybe you've had a family member who was struck with a serious or terminal illness. And... They, their health is declining and deteriorating and you're having a hard time connecting the dots of why. 
Right? The question within this passage is, is God still there in those moments? When crisis and tragedy hit, do we think about the glory of God? Do we think about the bigger plan that God may be working in and through our lives and the lives of others? Or do we, like Martha and Mary and this group of mourners, do we get so distracted and do we get sucked in down this tunnel of present circumstances at the micro level that we can't see this macro view of what God may be doing in and through these circumstances to make us more like Jesus and to bring Him the most glory? Right? Jesus has laid that foundation and the priority and the purpose of Lazarus being ultimately struck with illness. He lets them know that this is going to be put on display for the glory of God. But you're there, you're in the moment, you're struggling with finding purpose, and you're suffering, and you're in a trial. You know verses like Romans 8, 28, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to His purpose. You know the verses, Proverbs 3, 5, and 6, trust in the Lord with all your heart, and do not lean on your own understanding, in all your ways acknowledge Him, and He will make straight your paths. But friends, if you're like me and we're honest with ourselves, in that moment of crisis, in that moment of tragedy and pain and suffering, sometimes those verses tend to seem like salt in the wound more than they are the balm of Gilead. Sometimes they sting more than they help. And instead of trusting and strengthening our faith in Christ in this greater plan of the glory of God, we doubt, we fear. We develop anxiety, and ultimately our faith seems to waver in moments of crisis and tragedy, and we lose sight of the glory of God. Friends, it's in that moment we have a choice. We have a choice, and we arrive at a crossroad of decision. That decision at that crossroad is this. By God's grace, we can choose either to feed our faith Or in our moment of crisis, we will choose to feed our doubt. Right? We have an opportunity in that moment of crisis, at that crossroads of decision. We're either going to feed our faith or we're going to feed our doubt. What are we going to choose? And ultimately, we know by God's grace that we need to, we need to choose to feed our faith. But how? What is the process or the filter by which we can put all these emotions and these circumstances and these situations so that we can get on the other end And we can arrive with the purpose of the glory of God. Friends, again, we're we're confronted with countless opportunities to engage in this process at the micro level. What what, what do I mean by micro, right? The the everyday minutiae of life. It might not be big things, but just simple choices to believe and to trust and to take heart and to have hope when the little things of life just don't seem to be lining up let alone in these macro or these big situations of life, the loss of life, the loss of a job, financial frustrations and challenges. The relationship with your wife is on the rocks and you just seem to not have any hope because circumstances are real and they're heavy and we're burdened down. And we have a hard time processing crisis and tragedy in a healthy way. So friends, there's this universal truth in life. This truth is this, that at every given day, at any given hour, at any given minute of every second of the day, we are choosing to either feed our faith or feed our doubt. 
And it's in, it's in that moment, the moment of, of the little things and the big things of every day and hour and minute and second that we choose to feed and that whatever we choose to feed is what will ultimately grow in our life. So if we feed our faith, guess what's going to grow? Our faith. If we feed our doubt and we allow fear and anxiety and failure to define us, guess what's going to grow in our life? Doubt. This is we're having a strong relationship with Jesus and being centered on his character and knowing who he is as revealed in scripture can anchor us in these moments of crisis and tragedy. So ultimately, friends, that's where I see us in John 11. I see Jesus arriving on the scene and I see him reaching out to those he truly did love. And in his strength, He meets them, Mary, Martha, and these group of mourners. In his strength, he meets them in their weakness. And in his wisdom, he meets them in their confusion. And in his person of hope, what does Christ do? He makes, he meets them in their despair. How does he do that? How does he provide these tangible needs that this group of people need? He reminds them of who he is. Who is he? He is the resurrection and the life. He is the bread of life. He is the before Abraham was, I am. He is the light of the world, as we have seen all through the Gospel of John. This is Jesus. And so although this group of people are struck with crisis and tragedy, we can be anchored in who God is and we can take hope in that. That no matter how dark and how bleak the circumstances may look, Lazarus being in the tomb for four days, no matter how bleak the circumstances may seem, Christ can still do a miracle. And this is the power of hope that Christ wants to breathe into our lives this morning as we continue to work our way through the gospel of John chapter number 11. He's seeking to remind them that although there is a thief that has come to steal, kill, and destroy in John 10, He's reminding them that he still has come to give life and that they would have abundant life. Jesus in this passage is going to remind them that the sting of death is already defeated. Why? Because Jesus has come. The long awaited for Messiah is here. This future resurrection hope that Martha was so quick to regurgitate back to Jesus That future resurrection hope is staring her right in the eyes in the person of Jesus. And that future power of resurrection is available right now, right right today. Not only to Martha and to Mary and to this group of mourners, but it's available even to us. So it's at that moment of decision. And it's in the response of the wavering faith of Martha that Jesus proclaims that beautiful truth again that he reminds them he is the resurrection and the life. Crisis has hit. The sting of death and tragedy has settled in. And we have individuals and we have groups responding in very different ways in chapter 11. And I'm hopeful by God's grace that as we work through this passage, we can see a process and a path by which we too can process crisis and tragedy for the glory of God. We're going to look at just two simple, basic truths in this passage this morning, verses 28 through 44. We're going to first look at Jesus being confronted, questioned, and labeled a failure. 
And then secondly, we're going to look at how Jesus responds to the tragedy in a perfect way to bring maximum glory to God. Let's read our passage this morning and we'll dive in to our message. John chapter 11, verse number 28 reads this. When she had said this, she went and called her sister Mary, saying in private, The teacher is here and is calling for you. And when she heard it, she rose quickly and went to him. Now Jesus had not yet come into the village, but was still in the place where Martha had met him. When the Jews who were with her in the house consoling her saw Mary rise quickly and go out, they what? They followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb and to weep there. Now when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. Verse 34, and he said, where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. So the Jews said, see how he loved him? But some of them said, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man also have kept this man from dying? Verse 38, then Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave and a stone lay against it. Jesus said, take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor, for he has been dead four days. Jesus said to her, did not I tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone. And Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me. But I said this on account of the people standing around, that they may believe that you sent me. When he said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The man who had died came out, his hands and feet bound with linen strips and his face wrapped with a cloth. Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. Let's open in a word of prayer. Father, we thank you for this morning. Thank you for this passage of scripture that we can just quiet our hearts and our minds around. That we can literally by your spirit just uh, be placed in the context of this passage and just seek to learn what you would have us to learn this morning. To not just go through vain repetition of sitting in a chair and going through the motions of getting through a sermon, Father, but we would be active participants and engaged in hearing well for your glory, that we would seek to guard ourselves from distractions this morning and that you would show us Jesus, that you would allow the gospel to speak to our fear. You would allow the gospel to speak to our anxiety and our doubt and our failure and that we would find new hope this morning in you and the power of your resurrection. So, Father, I pray that you would change us to be more like Christ as a result of being in your house this morning. We ask these things in your name. Amen. So the first point this morning, Jesus is confronted and questioned and labeled a failure. He's confronted, he's questioned, and he's labeled a failure. We see that in verses 28 through 30. 
7. But before we dive into that, reminding ourselves of the context of these few verses is very important as Dave has preached over the last couple of weeks, because it's in this story really of premature tragedy um, that Mary, Martha and this group of mourners uh, really take to the nth degree. At no point in this passage does Jesus seem to be a victim of these circumstances. At no point in this passage does Jesus just seem to be, you know, he just kind of had bad time and management. If he just would have, you know, cook, took a better track of the calendar and time, he could have arrived and it would have been a different outcome. No, this was strategic. It was intentional. Right? As David said, a strategic delay absolutely was Jesus' plan. So he wasn't just a victim of circumstances or disorganized timelines, and it clearly wasn't due to shallow relational ties. He loved Lazarus, Mary, and Martha. At all times, his intentionality and genuine concern for the maximum display of the glory of God is what drove Christ's every move in this passage. If you'll humor me to just look back at verses 1 through 4 and remember this context as we build It says this, now a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. It was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. So the sisters sent to him saying, Lord, he whom you love is what ill. But when Jesus heard it, he said, the illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. So in this passage, John 11, Jesus is confronted, challenged, and labeled a failure three times in this passage. Dave, I won't go into the detail of the interaction with Martha. Dave covered it in verses 20 through 21. So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him. But Mary remained seated in the house. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if... You had been here, my brother would not have died. We see in verse 32, Mary goes on to have a confrontation with Jesus. Similar verbiage to what Martha described. She says in verse 32, Now when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. And finally, the Jewish crowd of Mourners in verses 36 through 37, they said, so the Jews said, see how he loved him after they saw Jesus weeping, but they misinterpreted it. It goes on to say, but some of them said, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man also have kept this man from dying? So between Martha and Mary and his mourners, he's confronted and challenged and ultimately he's labeled a failure. Jesus Christ, the son of God, The Messiah, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, the one who spoke all things into existence is labeled a failure. They're completely missing. Not only what Christ has communicated, how he's interacting with this situation, and ultimately what he wants to do to bring maximum glory to the Father. So what exactly was Jesus being confronted and challenged about? In what way was he labeled a failure. Surely, first his timing was called into question. Right? We've kind of alluded to that already. If you had been here. Right? I'm going to give us a, a quick little English 
lesson for us all on this fine Sunday morning, right? Can we do that? It's just what you wanted to do on Sunday morning, right? Is a little English lesson. What tense is had been? Humor me. What tense of that verb is had been? Past what? Past perfect, right? Had been, right? So what, is, what does that mean? I had to look it up myself if I'm honest, right? So the past perfect tense indicates that an action was already completed or finished at some point in the past before something else has already happened. If you had been, right? What was Martha saying? Your timing was all wrong. Lazarus died before you could come heal him. Man, translation from Mary and Martha to Christ in 21st century English. You messed up, Jesus. You messed up. You didn't come when I told you. You missed your opportunity. Lazarus is dead. You failed. Make no bones about it. This is what Martha and Mary are communicating to Jesus. Secondly, surely they were calling out his priorities into question. Not only was his timing all wrong, but surely his priorities were all wrong as well. Where do we see this? Verse 6, So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Mary and Martha are probably thinking, what could have been more important than coming to heal Jesus? Why stay two more days? Again, Lazarus is dead. You failed. His timing, his priorities, and finally, surely, his power is called into question. He healed the blind man. Why not Lazarus? This group of mourners absolutely called the power of Jesus into question. The great miracle worker doing signs and wonders all throughout their land. He could have, but he didn't. It's been four days and the time for miracles has been long gone. The case is closed in their mind. Jesus, Lazarus is dead again. You failed. Remember Martha's comment, but even now, I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you the panic and the hopelessness. It's setting in. Jesus, you are the Christ, the Son of God. So why me? Why allow Lazarus to die when you are able? You chose not to come. Lazarus is dead. You failed. This is the perspective that Jesus is walking into. His timing, his priorities, and his power, they were all called into question on that day. But there was one more way that Jesus was confronted, challenged, and ultimately labeled a failure that will lay the foundation for Jesus' emotion and Jesus' response in verses 38 through 44. So what was the final and most, if I could even call it hurtful, way that Jesus was called into question? And it was his motive. Ultimately, his love was called into question. Did Jesus just say in lip service that he loved us in Lazarus? Does he really love us? It was in this moment of tragedy, in this moment of crisis, that they began to question his, his love. Let's think back again to context. Verse three. So the sisters sent to him saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. Verse five. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister 
and Lazarus. Verses 14 and 15, then Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus has died and for your sake, I am glad that I was not there so that you may believe, but let us go to him. Verse 36, so the Jews said, see how he loved him. You see, in their mind, Jesus' love failed. It is in these moments of Jesus being confronted and challenged and labeled a failure that the outward expressions of doubt, fear, and dare we even say suspicion are fully exposed in Martha, Mary, and this crowd. Right? Do you see in their challenging, in their questioning, what's exposed in their hearts? Do you see it come out in, in their interaction with Jesus? And ultimately, as Jesus observes this outward expression of doubt and fear and suspicion, as is exposed in Martha and Mary and this group of mourners, it literally shakes Jesus to the core. And he experiences some very intense Emotion as a result of seeing what he sees on this scene. Remember, what did Jesus tell the messenger that had come to give word? He told him that this illness would not lead to death. Remember that he told his disciples that Lazarus has what fallen asleep and that it was time to go awaken him. Remember, he so boldly proclaimed to Martha, I am the resurrection and the life. But here he is. Jesus is on the scene. Hope has come. And what is Christ met with? In this moment of tragedy and crisis, Martha, Mary, and the mourners choose to feed their doubt instead of feeding their faith. They process this tragedy through the lens of present circumstances, and they fail to process this tragedy properly through the lens of the glory of God. And as a result, what do they do? They doubt the person and work and the love of Jesus. So this brings us in our passage to the elephant in the room of verse 33. Let's read it one more time. Verse 33 says this, when Jesus saw her weeping, who? Mary, right? She had just come to him after Martha had gone to her privately in the room and said, hey, he's already, you knew he was coming, but you stayed in the house last time. And now Jesus, he wants to talk with you. And what does she do? She rises up and she goes to where Jesus is at. Verse 33, when Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. Deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. I don't know about you. I've heard countless sermons, um, interpretations on this passage and oftentimes, this verse, right, it's, I think it's, it's a very critical verse, right? So I, I want to take a little bit of time here. Oftentimes, this verse is spun with the flare of sympathy and empathy on the part of Jesus. He is almost labeled with uh, some type of pseudo-shame and regret after observing this weeping of Mary. Like he, he feels sorry that he somehow failed. Right? Have you ever heard that nuance of, of this passage? Right? He's, he's relating to, to Mary and his deeply uh, moved and greatly troubled is, is almost a term of sympathy and empathy. But if you look at this context a little bit deeper, we see maybe a little different nuance here that I, I want to take some time to unpack. So obviously, 
Mary is expressing her grief in a very different way, right? Martha came to Jesus, and what did she do? She just starts talking, 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 right? She's got a lot of things to share. Um, She's trying to probably even preach to her own heart around who Christ is, and, and she's got a lot to say, but you don't see a ton of emotion in Martha's response, right? So she's expressing her grief very differently, right? Mary's tears have taken the place of most of Martha's words in this passage. One commentator really described this well, and so uh, humor me as I just read a a couple sentences uh, to describe the scene. In the present story, weeping, indeed loud weeping or wailing, would have conformed to the Jewish public mourning practices. It literally had professional mourners and musicians that families would hire to help them work their way through this grieving process. The fact that Mary fell at the feet of Jesus and wept, it literally has the idea of falling at Jesus' feet and publicly wailing in the midst of her grief. This undoubtedly would have been assigned to these Jewish mourners, this group of people that were with her, to join in in this weeping and wailing cultural practice. So just put yourselves on that scene. Jesus has come, and he's communicated that Lazarus' illness will not lead to death. Martha runs out and meets him, and he says, Martha, don't forget, I'm the resurrection and the life. Martha goes back, tells Mary, hey, Jesus wants to see you. She comes out all fired up. She falls at his feet and starts publicly wailing and weeping. All the mourners join in and everybody's making the scene of grief and wailing and weeping. And Jesus is challenged and he's confronted with his failure, his perceived failure in their eyes. And so this is what Jesus is walking into. Think of the affront and the offense that that would be to Jesus. Right? Are you, are you there? Do you... Do you hear the weeping and the wailing? Are you there in that scene to imagine the intensity of this circumstance that Jesus is dealing with? There is a lot of emotion packed into this. So Mary has fallen at the feet of Jesus and she's wailing. And we're there at the scene. Jesus, the the great I am, the bread of life, the light of the world, the before the Abraham was I am, the resurrection and the life. He has been lamb-blasted with doubt. And thus he's deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. I would contend that our polite English translation that we have here in, in multiple English translations of him being deeply moved in spirit and greatly troubled, they have failed to give sufficient negative impact to these Greek words in this sentence. You can literally translate this section of verse 33 this way. When Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, get this, he was deeply indignant, angered, and disgusted in his spirit and was greatly perturbed. This is literally how that verse can be translated. This wasn't some idea of sympathy or empathy that Christ was just walking alongside Mary, patting her on the back and saying it was going to be okay. He's being challenged. His deity is being challenged. His power and his timing and his might and his works are being challenged by their inability to process tragedy and grief in a healthy way. 
in a biblical way. So it is clear that the reaction of Jesus to this kind of wailing by Mary and the mourners was hardly, again, empathetic support. But why? Why was Christ deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled? Because the love of Christ was at stake. Martha had what been full of words. And here Mary and her supporters were full of tears and wailing. But for all of them, one commentator said this way, Jesus was an unrecognized power in their midst. They missed in this moment of tragedy and crisis what Christ wanted to do on their behalf. What he wanted to do for their doubt. What he wanted to do for their fear. He wanted to cast it out. And he wanted to replace it with hope and power. Resurrection power. But they were tunneled visioned on their present circumstance and they missed who Christ was and what he wanted to do on their behalf. So based on all that Jesus has experienced and observed, Christ goes on in this passage. But what did he do? He simply asked for the tomb. And in this process of transition, Jesus is noted as what? Weeping, right? Jesus wept. Famous two words in scripture. Jesus wept. But how did he weep and why did he weep? And how does this weeping contrast to the weeping and the wailing of Mary? It's two different words. John uses carefully a different word for the weeping and the tears of Jesus. A word that is not used elsewhere in the New Testament, but right here. And it's in stark contrast to the weeping of Mary. Hopeless weeping. Fearful weeping. Anxious weeping. When Christ wept, He was sorrowful because they were not believing in Him as the Christ, the Son of God. So it's in that tragedy, in that crisis, in all that Jesus has just observed, in Mary and Martha, the ones that He loved, that it brings tears to our Savior's eyes. So Jesus is weeping. It was almost as though the evangelist John wanted to send a signal to his readers not to misinterpret Jesus' weeping. But isn't that what the mourners exactly did? Right? Jesus wept, and what, did, what was their conclusion? See, he loved Lazarus. Is that true? Absolutely. But is that why Jesus was crying? Absolutely not. And so even the mourners who saw these tears in Jesus' eyes, they misinterpret the the cause of his tears. They take Jesus' tears as an expression of grief over the loss of Lazarus. But Jesus knows what he is about to do. He's never lost sight of the purpose of John 11. That Lazarus' illness will not lead to death. And it's for the purpose of maximum glory that Christ is going to come on the scene and do something. Christ hasn't forgotten that. That's why he's there. And so he's weeping because they don't know that and they don't trust that and they don't believe in his power and his might and his person. And so here they are. Jesus knows what he's about to do. He is not weeping over the loss of Lazarus at all. It has been in his plan for the very beginning to put the glory of God on display in this situation. Rather, he is weeping over the questioning of his purposes and timing. But most importantly, he is weeping over their doubt in his love. Is this not even true today? Have you been there? Tragedy strikes. Crisis hits. 
Maybe even the sting of death in your own life with a family member or somebody else hits home. What's the first thing that we begin to doubt? Why? Why me, Lord? Don't you love your servant? Don't you love your follower, your disciple, Eric, Christina? Don't you love us enough to care for us? Why take this away? Why hurt us? Why harm us? Why cause this sorrow in us? We question the love of Jesus. We question Jesus' love when crisis hits. The very moment when we should be leaning into the person and work of Jesus, we draw away and we cast stones at the character of God and say, if you really loved me, you would not allow this to come in my life. But it's in that moment of tragedy and that pain and that suffering and that crisis that Christ wants to meet the desperate need of our hearts to be loved. So it's not his lack of love, but it's because of his love that he continues to mold us and to make us and to allow various kinds of trials, as James talks about, to make us more like him. So have you been there? Tragedy and crisis strikes and God doesn't meet our expectations in some way. And the first thing we do again in our weakness, in our human flesh, we doubt God's care, his concern and ultimately his love. And quickly, we got to start our second point. I promise. Jesus, secondly, responds to their tragedy in the perfect way to bring maximum glory to God. We see this in this second section, verses 38 through 44. Before we dive into that, though, in transition, we see in verse 38, then Jesus deeply moved again. Right. Let's remind ourselves it's important to note that Jesus's heightened sense of emotion continued through to this next section. He was again deeply moved or indignant and angered and disgusted by the responses. So the setting here at the tomb, it could not be higher as far as intensity and emotion. And it's in this final section of verses 38 through 44. Jesus will utter three simple commands in this last section. He'll say, take away the stone. Jesus will command Lazarus, come out. And the third and final that we cannot look past is Christ will tell uh, those involved, unbind him and let him go. First, quickly, the first command. And we'll see a contrast with this command where he um, commands, take away the stone. Take away the stone. We see that in verse 39. Jesus said, take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor, for he has been dead for days. Martha, in true form, what does she do? She jumps into action and she says, whoa, 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 whoa. I know you said take away the, take away the stone, roll it away, but Jesus, time out. Just a reminder, I know you may have forgotten some of these details because, again, you weren't here when you should have been, but Lazarus is dead. He's been in the tomb four days. His body is literally decomposing and there's going to be an odor. So let's, let's call a timeout. That's what, that's what Martha's, she's trying to take control, right? Do you see her personality coming out? Right? She's, she's trying to jump in and take control, right? The busy body, she's got the answer. So we see that in verse 40. What was Jesus' response in verse 40? Jesus said to her, did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God. 
She'd already given testimony to her belief in Jesus as the Christ, the Son of God, back in verse 26. And Jesus draws her back to that place again. So where's the contrast and what is the contrast? Martha continued to focus on the present circumstances and focusing on those present circumstances. It directed her thoughts, her actions and her perspective, even at this very moment as she's at the tomb with Jesus. And he's given a command to roll away the stone. Christ, in contrast, focused on what? The glory of God. And Christ, focusing on the glory of God, that also directed his thoughts, his actions, and his perspective. So we continue to transition through, and we get to the second command. What was it? Lazarus, come out. Verses 41 through 43. So they took away the stone, finally, as Jesus had requested, and Jesus lifted up his eyes and said this, a prayer. Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me. But I said this on account of the people standing around. Why? That they may believe that you sent me. And when he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. So the stone is rolled away. And Christ audibly engages in the first of three prayer texts that we see in the Gospel of John. We'll see another prayer just in the coming chapter of chapter 12. And obviously the most common prayer of Jesus in the Gospel of John is John chapter number 17. That again, Dave, just a reminder, I've got dibs on that. Um, just, just throwing that out there as a reminder. <clears throat> But in all of these prayers, what does Jesus do? He specifically indicates uh, his prayer is to who? The Father. In all three of these prayers, he prays to the Father, right? And right before the second command is released, verse 42, that they may believe that you send me, that you sent me. What does this sound familiar to? John 20, 31, Right. Does that sound familiar? Right. All through the gospel of John, chapter after chapter after chapter, Christ has been challenging what their unbelief. He's been doing sign, miracles and wonders to bolster and to grow and to secure true faith in the person and work of Jesus. So in verse 42, he says that they may believe that you sent me. This sounds so familiar to John 20, 31. But these are written wise so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. So in essence, this prayer that Jesus engages in wasn't for his benefit. Whose purpose was it for? It was for the purpose of bringing Martha and Mary and the mourners to the point of belief and faith in Jesus as the Christ, the Son of God. That's why he audibly takes a moment to pray this prayer. His purpose was for them to truly recognize and respond to him as Savior and Lord. And so Jesus commands, Lazarus, come out. So what was the point of this second command? The point of this second command is to give the world just a taste of God's amazing power and grace. It is to look forward to the resurrection power that on the third day, Christ will defeat sin, death, and hell and raise from the dead. And that resurrection power that Jesus cried out to Lazarus, 
come out. And that resurrection power that ultimately secured the resurrection of Jesus from the dead is the same power that we're going to have on our behalf to live for the personal work of Jesus. So in this miracle, raising Lazarus from the dead, it would be what the final of Jesus' public acts of power and would ultimately point beyond this miracle to his own resurrection. And I love how one author stated this resurrection of Lazarus. It would forever mark Jesus as entirely unique. It would forever mark Jesus as entirely unique. Out of all the religions, all the leaders, all the prophets, all the idols, all these good teachers and rabbis that have ever come and that ever will come, there is no one like Jesus. For it is he who alone, alone, that wields the power of resurrection power, because why? He is God, the creator of all things, and he is unique. It sets him apart. And so this setting is powerful for us from an apologetic perspective to defend our faith. Who else has the power to raise a man from the dead? Who else has done these great miracles and wonders? Quickly, let's look at the third and final command. Unbind him and let him go. In verse 44, the last verse of our passage that can easily be overlooked and cast aside. The big part has already happened. Lazarus is raised from the dead. Lazarus come out. But yeah, we have this final command. It's significant. What does he say? Unbind him and let him go. (laughs) Just take a step back. Can you imagine? Christ calls out to Lazarus to come out. You see the body of Lazarus. The stone is rolled away. You have a visual on Lazarus in the tomb. His body begins to stir. You see movement from this body that literally stinks and has been decomposing. And it doesn't just stir and begin to move as life begins to take part into his cold, dead body. But then a leg gets down off of the tomb bed and an arm moves and this man stands up and he's completely covered in grave clothes and he's stumbling out of a tomb. Can you imagine the awe, the wonder, and dare I say even the fear I don't know about you, but I might be taking a couple steps back, right? I mean, this is, this is a man who was dead and is now walking out of a tomb. This is incredible. This is incredible. The emotions, again, are still running very high as they're trying to make sense of everything that is happening right now. And so what is the purpose of this third command? Again, I don't want it to be overlooked. It is important to note that although Jesus performed the miracle He has used human agents to assist him throughout each one of these commands. That's somewhat unique when you think of his miracles. Usually, Jesus was the sole agent in performing the sign, miracle, and the wonder. But in this case, in each of these commands, other than Lazarus come forth, he he employs uh, potentially Mary and Martha, and for sure the, the mourners that would be present, this crowd that is gathered, he tells them the first and the third, the first command to do what? Roll away the stone. He didn't do it. He wanted them to be what? Active participants in this miracle. He tells them in the last one to do what? Go unbind him and let him go. They want them to go to Lazarus's feet. And he, they want, he, Jesus wants them to start taking off these grave clothes. So they can be active participants 
in this miracle. They could see the real live body that was once dead underneath these grave clothes as they unbind him and let him go. There is something very intentional about Jesus saying go, employing them to go and unbind him. So it's in their participation that the mourners, in fact, became part of the sign and therefore were undeniable witnesses to the power of Jesus. And as such, the glory of God was put on full display as the faith of all these present was undoubtedly strengthened on this day. You see that? So three commands in this last section as we see Christ perfectly interacting in these circumstances to bring maximum glory to God. So in conclusion, what about us? What crisis or tragedy are you facing today? What present circumstances are holding you captive and as a result crippling your faith and hope in who Jesus is? Are you maybe a Martha struggling to believe and fighting to find the right words in the midst of your tragedy? Are you potentially a Mary? Have you lost all hope and seem to be blaming God for not coming through and meeting your expectations just as you thought he should? Are you potentially the mourners struggling to believe and trust the power of God in the midst of all this confusion? You are at a crossroad just as these through these three uh, individual groups are as well. The question is, will you feed your faith and seek the glory of God? Or will you believe the present circumstances of your pain and feed your doubt? Remember, we have a choice. Whatever we feed is what will grow as we look forward to celebrating an empty tomb just next week. Let's today be reminded that no matter what we are facing, we can take hope and find rest in the truth that he is the Christ the Son of God, that He has defeated sin, death, and hell, for He has risen just as Lazarus has. Friends, crisis, tragedy, and the glory of God. You're at a crossroads. How are you going to process your tragedy for the glory of God in your own life? Let's close in a word of prayer. Father, we thank You this morning for Your Word. Thank you that you are alive and well and that you are seeking to do a work in and through us and our families. Father, you allow these crisis moments into our life to draw us back to you, to point us back to you. Father, so often we do trust in our own understandings and we lean in our own ways. But Father, I pray that in the midst of crisis and tragedy that you would take everything that we are leaning on, that we are trusting in, that is not your word and that is not Jesus and is not your character and that you would make us more like Jesus. Father, I know there's many here even today that have gone and are going through difficult circumstances. I even think of Dave and Pam Painter, their daughter-in-law, Rebecca, who just just a young middle-aged woman with, with multiple children who have been diagnosed with, with cancer. Um, Father, those things can shake us to the core. But Father, I pray that as we continue to mature in our relationship with you, that we would, by your grace and by the ministry of your spirit, allow us to go through a, a healthy process of being able to filter this crisis and tragedy in a healthy way. So Father, even right now, we do lift up Rebecca to you. And we pray that you would have your hand of healing and grace and mercy and protection on her life. And Father, we pray for your glory above all things. We thank you for the good report of 
uh, a seemingly uh, successful surgery. We know that she's still got a difficult road ahead as she looks towards chemo and, and different options there. But we pray you would give grace and wisdom as they continue to walk that road. Father, pray for us, no matter what we're going through, that we would look to you, the author and finish of our faith, trusting you, knowing that you are in complete control and you've given us each other to help bear these burdens and to get through life. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. I apologize for going late, so let's go ahead and quickly transition.